0: Adam Frank is a professor of anthropology in the uh, University of Central Arkansas and is the author of uh, a really um, important book. Ben Judkins once described it as something like the most important book you've probably never read. And it was your 2006 book on called Tai Chi Chuan and the Search for the Little Old Chinese Man. I think since Ben Judkins has said that, probably a lot more people have read it. I read it and I loved it. And Ben's read it, and he loved it. And I'm just—I uh, just want to say hello, Adam. How are you doing? Doing all right, thank you. How are you? Yeah, I'm. I'm. I'm okay. I'm okay. I'm a bit. It's a bit hot and sweaty here at the moment. And British. British houses are not set up for hot weather. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I remember. <laughs> yeah. So you um, you have been to our martial arts studies conferences. You've written this seminal monograph on uh, learning Tai Chi in Shanghai. Um, and you've written articles about the transmission of, of of Tai Chi and the politics of Tai Chi institutions. And um, a little bird tells me that you've also got some experience working in Kung Fu martial arts films. Is this true? Really? How did you know that? <laughs> <laughs> I know everything. Tell me a bit about that first. Oh yeah. Well, uh... Well, you know, I'm, a, I'm,
1: I'm an actor. I'm a theater and film person. That happened before the anthropology. So um, when I moved to Hong Kong in the mid eighties, um, just out of college, maybe two years, mm-hmm. I, um, you know I was looking for a job <laughs> when I got to Hong Kong. And you know what do you do? You teach English, and you get recruited to uh, to be an extra in in bad kung fu movies. Okay. So uh, that that's really how that started. And and I was kind of looking for that because I actually had my my undergraduate degree in theater, and uh, and and had done a little bit of film at that point. So I really wanted to get into that world. And at that point, it was the mid '80s. Uh, John Wu, Chow Yun-fat. It was really this. Serious golden age of uh, cinema in Hong Kong. It was a very exciting time. So I really wanted to get involved with it, mm-hmm. and there were um, a lot of um, little, you know, advertisements in the newspaper and South China Morning Post and the YMCA, etc., for, uh, for for being extras in these films. So I got I, I got going with it that way, and um, through that process, I you know, first of all, I met a bunch of kung fu bums. Mm. Lots of Kung Fu buns. So people like me who've do, done martial arts back in the States and were trying to do martial arts in Hong Kong. So that's some really great people. Uh, but yeah, so I made a bunch of, uh, first of all,
0: uh, if you've ever heard of, have you ever heard of Godfrey Ho? Um, no, I'm going to go with no. Okay. Please <laughs> ask any further questions. Sometimes called the Ed Wood of Hong Kong cinema.
1: He, he made, <laughs> yeah, and my dog agrees with that. Yep, description. But uh, it probably made some of the worst, the, truly the worst movies ever made. Uh, he, uh, the company he worked for, created uh, the system where they, he, Godfrey Ho would shoot these ninja movies, and like you would at, literally dress up in sequined ninja clothes. You could be red ninja, gold ninja, blue ninja. Mm-hmm. And you had a little headband that said "Ninja" in English,
2: <laughs> just to just just you knew what, what was going
1: on. Yeah, <laughs> right. So um, they would purchase the rights to some other movie from Philippines or Thailand or Malaysia, and uh, so they filmed this footage, and it starred a guy named Richard Harrison, who was from the kind of golden era of the end of the golden era of Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Uh, a B-movie actor, and he was in all these movies. Um, so they'd take the footage from these ninja movies, and then they would splice them into the other movies and yeah. create a whole new movie, and you'd have to write a dubbing script to match that movie. I got to write the dubbing script sometimes, too. Uh, but what's was, what was interesting about those movies is the Jackie Chan's stunt crew. Jackie Chan at that time had a really big stunt school in yeah. Hong Kong. And his stuntmen always worked on those films. So you'd have this really, really bad movie, but with these incredibly talented stunt people mm-hmm. doing some pretty amazing stuff. And uh, so that, that, that was fun. And, and I just got to work on, uh, uh, Brandon Lee was making movies at that time and got to work on a film with him. And uh, uh, Jackie Chan got to do... Uh, Ah, uh, Project A, part Two, which was, I think the first one that he did after he had this very serious injury, head injury yeah. around that time. And this was a big deal because it was the first movie that he directed after he recovered from that. Mm-hmm. and and of course, was doing his own stunts in it again, too. So just being able to you know watch him work and and then uh, the main work I did, though, was really dubbing. So I dubbed probably. I don't know, a hundred movies and TV shows and cartoons and and things like that at that time. Um, so, and that went on, you know, several years later in Shanghai, got to work with Chen kai gu on a film and got to work with a really horrible TV series called Flatland that I don't think anybody's ever seen with Dennis Hopper, of all people, right. in Shanghai. Right. So just a crazy sort of, Inroads into that, and through all of these, I met martial arts people mm. who um, were really influential on whatever it was that I was doing. Oh, I've got Jean claude Van Damme. I'm going to drop one more name. I oh. got to be hand in and and got to see him kick my friend in the face by accident.
0: So. Okay. We should talk more about that offline. I a friend of mine said he he dropped similar names. I wonder if he was working in the Hong Kong film industry as an as a as a right Who was people. it? Um, Can you tell? No, we'll He might not want this out. in He's a respectable <laughs> businessman now. Um, so you chose you, you had a diverse martial arts background, and you chose Tai Chi out of all the martial arts. I mean, was it was it just like a love affair? When did it's you happen? the hmm? Hold that <laughs> dog. Okay. So uh, Adam's gone off to uh, engage with, I don't think it's his dog. I think it's his neighbor's dog. I'm sorry,
1: that was my dog.
0: (laughs) Your dog now, joining in, okay. Yes, that trapper in the house there.
1: Hopefully that'll work. So when did you meet Tai Chi? When did I meet Tai Chi? Yeah. I was 17, Tucson, Arizona. Uh, My first teacher uh, was Michael Phillips, who, Taught me uh, Cheng Man Ching style,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and um, he uh, he was a boxer, I guess, as a young man. He grew up in New York, and uh, so he was really he really got involved with that whole New York Chinatown martial arts world.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and it was late sixties,
2: early seventies for him. Yeah. Uh,
0: so. Look, is there any way I can deal with this? It's not. It's <laughs> it not be, coming through that loudly. We can hardly hear the dog. I don't think the All dog. i not right, okay. bothering you. It's All fine. right. Okay. Um,
1: yeah. So I I did Zheng Man style for the first three years. So from the age of seventeen to about twenty,
2: mm-hmm.
1: I did Cheng Man style, and um, and then I, I, about that time, as somewhere in the middle of the university, I decided to go find myself, as we, we all do. And uh, I found myself in San Francisco, apparently. Um, uh, who knew? I didn't know I was there. But uh, went to San Francisco looking for martial arts, really looking for Tai Chi. Yeah. And um, ended up studying with uh, a little bit of Guangping Yang style with a guy named uh, uh, Chen, Chen Chang-Yun. Mm-hmm. And um, studied a little bit with a guy named Peter Ralston, who was doing William Chen's version of Man of, uh, Manxing style. Um, but uh, ended up having some uh, health problems at that time. So I, I kind of tailed off on my practice until uh, I got back to Arizona a couple of years later.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and then that, that was it, that's where it really started. And then, you know, when I went to Hong Kong, that's where I picked up the Wu style initially and mm-hmm. got to meet uh, folks in Shanghai later. Uh, who and then I do the Shanghai Wu style now, so mm-hmm. it, that mid to late '80s time was pretty uh, pretty important for in terms of what I do now.
0: Mm. And then you 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 went back to university, and ultimately you did a PhD in anthropology, and your your study was of like identity uh, and ethnicity in, in Shanghai in the Shanghai martial arts community. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: I did. Um, there was a little bit in between. So I didn't go back to school for about 10 years, uh, actually. And uh, I was just practicing on my own most of that time. Um, and then in the, 1995, I was doing my master's degree uh, in uh, international affairs in, in Washington. And I had a chance to go, to go back to Shanghai at that time. So that's the first time between the late 80s and, and you know, 95, that, that was the first time I was able to reconnect with that Wu-Style group. So that was really the beginning of that project, although I didn't realize it at the time. But mm-hmm. that was the first really intense study of about six or seven months uh, with that Wu-Style group in Shanghai.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And um, so a couple of years later, when I was in the middle of the anthropology degree, or just starting the anthropology degree in Texas. Um, you know, it's really one of those funny moments, and I think a lot of us have this with, with the research we really enjoy the most. It's like, nobody will be interested in this and nobody will let me do this.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So I should just keep this to myself, right? So I, I had a light bulb moment about, and I, I kind of saw the whole thing at that moment, uh, the sort of the structure of the thing at that moment. And um, in, a, in a seminar, with the person who later became my uh, advisor in the project. Okay. And um, kind of didn't tell her about it for a couple of weeks because I thought nobody's gonna let me go play Tai Chi, yeah. you know, for yeah. my PhD. Yeah. There wasn't no martial arts studies yet, Paul. <laughs> yeah. um, but she, you know, and once I told her, she said, oh, that's a fantastic idea. So I got a lot of support there and, and that's really what, what got that going. Um, and it wasn't really about identity per se, Mm-hmm. when I started. Um, it was really more about environmental changes that were going on in Shanghai,
2: okay. and how those connected
1: to the practice. Mm-hmm. But I found that was really not gonna work once I got there. Um, but what I got when I got there, a lot of conversation from Chinese people about how they got into Taiji,
2: mm-hmm. and how
1: mm-hmm. movies and comic books and radio shows and all these different things contributed to them getting into it. So there was this whole sort of global imaginary happening <laughs> that I, I started to, to, to really get interested in at that time.
0: Yeah, and you, this, 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 the structure of the book is um, unusual in the sense that you, you kind of structure the book through um, a poem in relation to a poem and also, in, obviously, in relation to like Taoist concepts of, of yin and yang. Could you tell us a little bit more about the, the structure of the, of the book in that sense?
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, uh, I look at it now and I, I see a lot of pretense in there that I was not probably willing to admit to, to myself at the, at the time, you know, it was, uh, but at the time it was a very kind of a experimental department that I was working in, the anthropology department at, at University of Texas at Austin. Mm-hmm. Uh, just a lot of encouragement for doing things uh, experimentally, indirectly, uh, not necessarily empirically. Empirically based, but, but the product itself not mimicking past anthropology in some way. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had a lot of friends who were interested in poetry at that time. And so, just started playing with uh, Wallace Stevens' 13 Ways of Looking at a Blackbird as a starting point for what I was trying to say in the piece. And don't ask me what the poem's about, please. <laughs> but um, it, it seemed to indicate to me something about uh, searching for self or identity, for lack of a better word. Mm. Um, but that initial moment when I thought of the idea, is really where this structure of having it structured around the yin yang symbol, mm-hmm. the Taiji tool, is was. Mm-hmm. That, that's kind of where that happened, mm-hmm. and that kind of carried through. So I, I was saying it. It'd be nice, nice to create an ethnography that has some circularity to it, mm-hmm. that, that where we 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 start with the body and we end with the body, mm-hmm. on some level, and and what are all the various permutations and changes. That a, you know someone trying to learn this art goes through to um, kind of leave their body in a way mm-hmm. and see you know the rest of the world bring that experience back in and how does that actually change you right yeah. so that's really where that came from
0: yeah I mean, I didn't I didn't think that was um pretentious at all I thought that was um, really interesting and I, 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 I have lots of students who aren't studying martial arts but I, or maybe want to do some kind of Ethnography, and I always recommend that they read um, that they read your book, even if they're not interested in, in, in martial arts or Tai Chi or Shanghai at all. Because you, you, each chapter kind of deals with a different dimension of the construction of, of identity. There's there's the geography and, and topography of the city and the changing structure of the city, and then there's the place of of, of popular culture, like you mentioned, like films and the way that the filmic kind of imaginary percolates through into what people believe about the origin stories of tai chi and kung fu and then there's the what happens to your identity when you're playing push hands with another partner and it's it it, it has so many it's like well 13 ways to to look at a at a pro or, or a blackbird right. or, um so yeah and then there's some real there's some real um standout memorable moments in the book like that you can take away with and kind of Marvel about for ages. My favorite is the anecdote. It's not an anecdote. It's a section. You talk about the the demise of, of Falun Gong and the, the the emergence of like Mulan Chuan. Could you tell us a little bit about that? that that's a remarkable story. Tell us the, the, the Falun Gong and Mulan Chuan story. Yeah, um
1: Well, yeah, that's interesting because I I actually did a whole other ethnographic you know i I had a little mini ethnographic life anthropologist life about falun gong and uh, another practice called ian Gong. that happened before i went to do my field work in shanghai and that's just because i started to notice these groups in austin Mm -hmm. texas uh at my university there were some groups practicing and it was just about that time when I started, you know, interviewing those folks that the crackdown in China happened and, and both Falun Gong and Ian Xing Gong and many other uh, mass Qigong, Qigong Rue uh, movements were were quashed and outlawed and people were arrested. And and so by at that moment when those arrests happened, I was actually living in Washington, DC uh, preparing to go to china, so uh, that that actually became a whole other piece of research and uh, literally i I you know joined the protesters on the on the lawn the, the mall in in washington d c which is now occupied by other protesters, oddly enough mm-hmm. um, and uh, and and the Chinese embassy had a presence there and was literally pointing a camera in my face, so I was really worried I wasn't going to get a visa. And that ended up following me. That situation followed me throughout the fieldwork in Shanghai, in the sense mm-hmm. of having, you know, some minders who would check up on me uh, okay. from time to time. Right? I know I'm getting getting a little off topic there. Um. So so the the Falun Gong. Uh, what was the second part of the question
0: I've the talked second myself part was the, the story that you tell in the book about the, the arrest of all the, the, the Falun Gong people right, and the right. compound on Falun Gong led to empty parks in Shanghai. And yeah. there were reports of, of practitioners of a, a previously unheard of martial art right. called right. uh um, oh. Chuan. <laughs> and it's kind of like, it's almost as if the, the Chinese authorities had been planning this quick replacement, this switch So that they have something much more tourist-friendly, much more manageable, much less risky, much more kind of, um, uh, uh, I want to say fungible, much more plastic, rather than something with really strong principles. Would that be true?
2: Yeah.
1: um, Yeah, so that that part, I I actually, um, when that replacement happened in the parks, uh, I only found that out uh, at a panel I was on on Falun Gong um, at a conference. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the presenters had just come back from uh, Beijing, I believe.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And he he's That's the one that. who reported that, that that literally busloads of people have been brought in to do other things in the parks simply to occupy yeah. the space. Right. So when, and then I got to Shanghai to start my field work a couple of months later. Mm-hmm. And uh, Found out about Mulan Chuan, right? And you know, it's it's a very pretty kind of uh, uh, sword style, and um, and I think they have a fan style as well. And, mm-hmm. and so I started asking about that, and uh, I thought it was going to be another one of these old arts that I just had never heard of, mm-hmm. but I couldn't find anyone who knew anything about it before, just a couple of years earlier, perhaps. So yeah, that was one, and there were several others that. Uh, Certainly, the 24 became more popular, the Mm. Tai Chi 24 uh, style became more popular, which was always just a competition form, but Mm. all of a sudden, it was the form anybody could do without worrying, Mm. but what they didn't do was they they didn't ban any of these Tai Chi forms, so they did make a clear choice, and I I mean, the government made a clear choice that Tai Chi was okay, right? Mm. But there were definite times when I would be doing Taiji-related Qigong in the park, mm-hmm. and the police would watch me or ask me what I was doing, okay. and maybe I was doing it with somebody else and we'd have to explain, oh yeah, this is just Taiji, and right. they didn't want any trouble, so they'd say, okay, fine,
0: you know. Okay, and you also, um, you spent some time in the book talking about the way in which in cert- at certain key moments in, in kind of China's diplomatic recent history, that Tai Chi has been singled out as like a kind of a quintessential symbol of China, much the same way they, that the panda is somehow like quintessentially Chinese. But right. you argue that, that it, it, it has been pulled out and, and deliberately manipulated because it, it has always functioned in a kind of very non-Western, very... Uh, well, can, can I keep saying quintessentially Chinese uh, way? Is that would that be right? Uh, yeah,
1: yeah. I think in the book it was probably a, the argument might have been a little bit stronger than I would make it now. Um, I mean, there were there are other things, even in martial arts, that maybe are equally imbued with symbolism, and, and, mm. and, and uh, uh, you know, Chinese government uses for that purpose, but. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think that really started with uh, Andrew Morris's work on, on the kind of physical education movement in mm-hmm. China that happened earlier in the 20th century, and uh, he writes about the YMCA's being the kind of a birthplace for, for modern martial arts practice, mm-hmm. uh, for public martial arts practice anyway, and then um, a few years later you see a tai Chi team at the 19 uh, the, the Olympics in Berlin in the 30s,
2: mm-hmm.
1: I think the 36 Olympics, right? Yeah. So suddenly you have a sort of coming out party. So I think part of that use of Tai Chi is that it had already been used that way previously. Yeah. And this idea of Tai Chi should be taught publicly, it was an accessible martial art right away when, um, uh, when the Qing Dynasty fell. like you're looking for some some martial art that you could kind of quickly disseminate to the public. Tai Chi was perfect to do that because you could change it, right? You could make it this uh, nice, slow, easy thing instead of the hard parts and still call it Tai Chi. So I think that there were reasons for that. And I also wrote that at the time that that, um, China was preparing for the Olympics, for the Beijing Olympics. Mm -hmm. So they were really keying into that historical moment where this was part of the previous olympics let's put it in our own olympics or let's use it as a symbol so initially the symbol for the chinese olympic committee was the posture uh serpent creeps downward an abstracted version of that yeah so you know there were real concrete reasons why i was talking about it but uh Partly, I, I had a little tunnel vision about it too, and there were other things
0: going on that <laughs> might have been. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I had a little tunnel vision about it, and yeah. so um, in, I guess, I mean, I don't know what, what continued kind of relationship, like, ship you have with China and going to China and having first things and experience of it, but if if the status of something like Tai Chi Chuan and and other Chinese martial arts shifts around and is used sometimes and subordinated other times. What kind of big changes have you seen with, Let's let's stick with Tai Chi, because I think that's your main interest still, isn't it? What kind of big changes have you seen across the decades in the states of Tai Chi within China, either domestically or internationally?
1: Yeah, yeah, boy, that's a big one. <laughs> I think, um, first of all, I haven't been back for about 10 years now, which is hard to believe. So, the last time I was in China was uh, I was doing a research project on the uh, World Expo in Shanghai in
2: two
1: thousand and ten. So you actually saw a lot of Taiji at the expo itself and this public display. It wasn't the only martial art, but but lots of Taiji, especially the Wudong style, so the Taoist monks mm. uh, in full monk gear, doing their group Taiji. Mm. So, I think that really, for me, marked the kind of culmination of that whole using Taiji for Chinese identity thing, Um, because that was a big coming out party for the whole country. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was about not broadcasting that image to foreigners, but broadcasting it to Chinese people from all over China Mm -hmm. who were coming to the expo. Yeah. So that was that was a really interesting interesting moment for me and just the way martial arts were being projected uh, for Chinese consumption. Yeah. But uh, I guess over the decades, I think, I did a lot of interviews at that time about just with foreigners like me who were in China doing martial arts and asked everybody, how did you get into it? Mm. And, you know, for everybody, it was either... David Carradine's, you know, Kung Fu TV series. Or, or Bruce Lee. Yeah. Or you could say Bruce Lee's Kung Fu TV series, as the case may be. Yeah. But um, everybody had the same story. And so we had a kind of this narrow, narrow band of reasons why we were there, how we got into it. Mm. And uh, most of us were roughly the same generation. We, growing up where the, those neighborhood Martial arts schools had started to really become quite popular in the US. I think now it's a very different situation that people come at it from lots of different ways. Many, many have come, at least from the United States, really get into it because they get into Chinese language now. Mm. And that really didn't exist in most schools, uh, high schools or university. Now a lot of
0: kids study Chinese in high school. Um, At least as of yesterday. I... <laughs> um, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned language because the, another um, really interesting discussion in the book is about the, the circulation of like the key terms of Tai Chi. So the key, like the, 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 like the idea of Qi, for instance. And um, you talk about how when a, a concept is, is exported or imported into another linguistic Cultural context. There are all sorts of power relations and power dynamics that 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 uh, come to like who is authorized in the English language in America or, or in the UK or somewhere to say what she is and to be able to and, and it's it's so it's not a straightforward like semantic translation, is it? It's not like well, this is what it denotes and this is what it connotes or this is. It's actually a whole set of of hierarchies or either. Transported also, or invented on the spot. Um, Could you tell us a little bit more about that? I've always loved that discussion since I first read it.
2: Yeah. um,
0: (laughs) um, Hold that thought. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. He's just vanished. I think. I think the dog is. uh, The dog (laughs) acting. I can't think. Uh,
2: Yeah. (laughs) All right.
1: He's much happier
2: now.
0: <laughs> In a better place. Okay.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm actually kind of getting ready to uh, update that whole discussion. And uh, you know, before before COVID hit, I was getting ready to update the whole project. In fact, I was I was planning to go to China and. Uh, and and kind of redo that whole thing and rethink that whole thing.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so I was gonna start the way I started with the Chi discussion before, which was looking at how people in the United States actually think about that idea. And uh, one thing I've really noticed is it's become just much more part of um, the language in the United States. That is, I can say the word chi to anybody now, and they'll know what I'm talking about. It's become a borrowed word in a much uh, more concrete sense, and I think it's just because it's disseminated through uh, through TV and movies and in in so many ways that people picked up on that word, and then the practices themselves have become quite popular. Mm-hmm. So, so that's been a real change. It's not just kind of a, a completely exotic thing that you see in bits and pieces of products and so on it's uh it's something people joke a lot about yeah so i hear a lot of joking context about you like yeah. i'm gonna fire my tea at you or
0: something yeah. like that yeah uh, it's interesting i mean i was just like it, i think i was i was playing scrabble with some friends like maybe 15 years ago and in my letters, I had Q and I had I. And I just thought, I'm not even going to bother. I'm not going there. But now I play Scrabble with my teenage daughters and they'll go, oh, no, it's Qi. It's a thing. It's a thing. And I'm like, Okay, I'll let you have that. I would, I still reluctant to use, you know, to use it in Scrabble. But now teenagers go, yeah, it's a thing. It's, it's, a, it's a legitimate word that I can use in Scrabble.
2: So. Go for it. I say go
1: for it, you know. What yeah. could happen? You know, the Chinese police could... To jump down and say no one expected the chi police
2: right
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah i mean there, there are other terms um that people argue about terms like sifu or shifu mm-hmm. um and in it, there's some like tai chi mar- institutions where like only the uh, the <laughs> you know, like master shifu or something he's the only person who can be sifu but it, like whereas if you're in hong kong it just means like mate doesn't it it's like you say to taxi drivers and you know i teach you something you might call me sifu you teach me something i call you sifu but it's just in, when that gets transported across into different cultural contexts it's like oh no you can't just you know yeah yeah so i you know I, again yeah, i think that's
1: changed i think that's changing with the younger generations in china too that i mean when i was first studying in shanghai you didn't call someone who wasn't your, te- your, your actual teacher, you didn't call them shibu.
2: Right.
1: Uh, you could call them lao shi, which is the other yeah, standard yeah. word for teacher. But even you know, a few years ago, I noticed that that seemed to be a little more fluid. And, and it might just be my poor Chinese, but uh, I think I was picking up on, on that. And uh, Hong Kong, it seemed more fluid than in Shanghai, <laughs> even in the 80s. Like you said, that,
0: you
2: know,
0: people were referred to as Sifu if that's what they did. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is, all, this is a discussion that's about identity, isn't it? I mean, I, I, I'll, I'll come clean, and I have tremendous difficulty when I see someone, for instance, on social media, and, and their names like John Smith or William Shakespeare, and they've got Sifu in front of it. Sifu Williams and you're like I just think no just no just no right because it seems so I mean if we're talking pretentiousness before, but I mean it shades into really really important and fundamental discussions about identity and the subtitle of 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 your book because your your PhD title was different but you have that you have the word identity in your in your books, like understanding identity through through right. martial arts, isn't it? So, so what's your tell us some of the things for those people who haven't read the book, some of the things in which you um, say identity comes into play or is modified, or yeah, to do with martial arts.
1: Well, first of all, I should say that you and Ben and and other folks have offered some really wonderful critiques of that approach, and that's modified my thinking to some degree. Um, just uh, you know, I spent a lot of time in that book trying to de-reify, <laughs> de-reify all kinds of martial arts related things. That is, you know, saying we 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 reify Chinese identity, we reify this, we reify that. But I think the discussions that you and I had on the, and the and the the stuff you've written about um the book. Uh, made me realize that to a degree, I, I was reifying identity itself more than I'm, I intended to, right? Just in in the writing. So I, I think at this point, I would probably abandon the centrality of identity. It was the thing when I was coming of age in my PhD. You know, everybody was talking about identity in the in in the mid '90s in at least in my university right so it made sense at that time but there's a a lot more to it now so that said i I think what i was really trying to get at and still play with and still still struggle with are uh, just all the sort of pressures and phenomena that impinge upon us on a daily basis Mm -hmm. that construct our our sense of self so, there's certainly a social constructionist approach there, right? Mm-hmm. But I didn't find that to be sufficient even at the time, and was trying to get to uh, you know phenomenological approaches to trying to discuss this identity thing right mm-hmm. and 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 so Taiji seemed like a good practice to to talk about that because there really were moments and and a lot of them in in the learning process with my teachers where we became so focused on what we were doing that I don't think there was any other, you know, reality for us during practice. And I think a lot of martial arts folks or anybody doing any kind of art or sport yeah. gets into that zone, not just alone, but with a coach or with a teacher. And it becomes a, a communicated moment that itself is, and, I, you know, a kind of identity, right? That At that moment, that's who you are together. Mm-hmm. I, when you're doing push-hands with somebody in Tai Chi, and you, you're, you're both kind of in that zone, I mean, it's a palpable feeling. Um, it may even be attended by, you know, some sort of uh, warmth or heat that you're experiencing and actually exchanging that. Uh, this is starting to sound weird. But... Um, I think that those are real real moments that if you don't attend to them as as an ethnographer and just focus on uh, on the on the sort of externals and the the, the facts of history or popular culture etc. You're, you're kind of missing out on on a huge huge part of you know mm-hmm. how we experience ourselves. So a lot of my questions started to shift towards that, and and I think I've continued to ask questions about that um, just. How do, you, how do you experience yourself? How do you feel about yeah. that idea moment?
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think I, I would. You know, I, we could talk about that for a long time because I also practice Tai Chi and I, and I and I know what you mean. But maybe for the benefit of people who don't practice Tai Chi, we should we should move a little bit away from the weird sounding stuff. But so, but actually, though, because um, Tai Chi, I think, because you know, we're we're in a time of global pandemic. Um, Many, most countries are in some version of lockdown, more serious in some places than elsewhere. Um, In Britain at the moment, it's completely and utterly schizophrenic. It's just the logic of Jaws. It's like, well, the shark's still out there, but we've got to get people on the beach, you know, we've got to get them back in the water. Um, But I think that, I mean, Tai Tai Chi has has become to occupy a kind of new place, hasn't it? Internationally, both in China and the Chinese press, and also online, on Facebook, on Zoom, on it, because it's, it really is something that you can do um, alone. And it can help you cope with lockdown. It can help people who live sedentary lives. It's almost like having, potentially having a kind of renaissance, don't you think?
1: It's an interesting way to think about it. I, I, I hadn't thought of it as a renaissance, but um, I do see what you mean. In fact, I'm, I'm actually, working on a um a, a book chapter for a book on um on the teaching about asia in the pandemic mm-hmm. right and and i'm writing a chapter about trying to teach taiji and qigong online yeah. so using uh, experiential methods to, to to get to certain uh, concepts in uh chinese philosophy for example etc and um so I'm, I'm looking now at all the different things that are being taught online, and it it really has exploded uh, just out of necessity, right? I mean, people want to do it, and I have my own very personal reasons for why I'm doing that, so I've been doing that every day for the last three months, Yeah, Uh, you know, except for some tech issues. Every single day, I have, uh, you know, a couple of classes online, and they're just me doing you know, do me doing my thing. And what that's forced me to do is, or, or what they got me to do really first out of fear, I have to say that when this hit, I was as freaked out and afraid as anybody else. You know, it just started thinking, well, like, first of all, I need, I need to get stronger. I mean, I need to get internally stronger
2: mm-hmm.
1: just in case I get sick. Yeah. And then what if I go, you know, I don't have any of this stuff recorded. My daughter will never see it. Yeah, I wanted that to be there, right? Yeah. Um, but I thought, well, maybe it can help, right? And uh, maybe somebody else would be interested in this.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I wrote this in this little blog I wrote for uh, for Ben Judkins, um, yeah. but um, it really was a matter of feeling like, oh, that's again incredibly pretentious, but. A friend who's a doctor ended up tuning in a lot, and then some elderly people did. Mm-hmm. And I realized that whole online phenomenon actually gives people access who didn't have it before. So in that sense, I think you're completely right. There's a renaissance, and there's actually there's actually a need for it out there, desire for it out there. And uh, but it also changes the way we do it, right? Because I don't think it's the same thing. We're not. And it's the same thing we're with teaching any university classes or high school classes online we're really not doing the same thing, and I think the second we start thinking we are, we're in trouble
2: yeah. we're doing yeah. something
1: very, very different. It has its value, but the fear is in the sort of um, 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 you know pandemic capitalism that we're <laughs> we're experiencing that um, that, that what we were doing in person may be replaced. I don't think that will happen in martial arts because
0: you know, people do need to touch each other, right, ultimately for, yeah.
2: for you to yeah. learn.
0: But, I think, I think yeah. that it's gonna precipitate. I mean, the, 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 you know, the move of teaching and learning online, whether that be a university course or whether that be Qigong or dance, like my daughter does ballet classes on Zoom now, you know, this kind mm-hmm. of stuff. Um, I think it force, it's going to force educators, especially those who are now apparently in fear of their jobs. Well, what happens once they've recorded our lectures where dispensable? We need to think about and articulate precisely what, what that, that certain je ne sais quoi is that the teacher brings to the experience, whether it needs to be physical or whether... Like, I, think, I think that for a long time, all of us academics, so I'm speaking to you now as an academic, We've coasted along and assumed that we needed to be there face to face, body to body in a real way. But now we have to explain why they don't just need YouTube and Wikipedia, you know, that's all. Um, But I think with the martial arts, you're right. It's it's, It's like there's a, it's interesting, isn't it? Because for so long there was that Hollywood joke, that Hollywood myth, someone who learns martial arts by watching the movies. You know, there's right. a, a long tradition of, of learning it from the screen, um, which is kind of a joke, but also there's some truth in it. And then you have, well, what do you lose? What do you lose? I think with Tai Chi, you know that you lose the push hands. You lose the, yeah, you, you can't, exactly. teach, can you teach the sensitivity? Can you teach stick, yield, you know, listen? Can you, can, you can't teach that, can you, on like this? Yeah, yeah. Well, I... I would say absolutely not, right?
1: What you can do is, uh, there's a wonderful film that circulates amongst the Wu-Sao people anyway, it's on YouTube, I can't remember the name of this uh, person. He was, he ended up, I think, being executed as a traitor after the World War II for collaborating with the Japanese. I think I know the guy, yeah, yeah. 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 And this particular film, he's got all this apparatus in his home I know the and stuff. And he's doing all these great exercises. And, and before I ever saw that, I had set up some much simpler things, but kind of practicing the very same principles that he was trying to practice with these large balls on a hanging on a rope. Yeah. Uh, practicing sticking, practicing neutralizing, all these things. And it's great to have those, but as soon as you touch another human being, of course, it's a whole new ball game. Yeah. Right. And, yeah. and so, I don't think we can get, you know, nian and and tingjing and these, you know, listening energy. We can't really develop that. And there's also a transmission that happens, I've noticed, with really high level Tai Chi people that the push hands is really a two person Qigong exercise. Yeah. They don't usually call it that. Yeah. yeah. But if yeah. you do it cooperatively in yeah. patterns, then, well, what are these patterns for? I can't use these patterns in a you know, yeah. on the street, right? Yeah. Well, the patterns are, are really an exchange of feeling yeah. and, and getting a sense of that softness.
2: Yeah.
0: So can't do that, right? Yeah. Well, I, was, I mean, I was, I've talked to lots of different people about this recently, and, um, you know, in, in, in many ways, uh, one guy I was talking to, um, Luke White, uh, a, a few months ago, and he, he said, actually, their Tai Chi classes in London have moved online, and there's more people now because actually, when you teach Tai Chi, I mean, when I teach Tai Chi, the first thing I want to do is get to the applications and go this, and, and, and right? And the, right. But the first time you put your hand on, on your archetypal Tai Chi student, that might be the last time you've, you'll see them. They might right. never come again because they, they didn't want anyone to touch them, even if it's just on the shoulder to demonstrate. So, like, you know, that, 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 that entry-level Tai Chi, mm. you know, the... the the internet might be it's it's absolute kind of ideal breeding ground but um but the next level the the push arms level I guess maybe not <laughs> yeah,
1: I, I think that's true I've, I've certainly had an experience teaching students that well they come in with their preconceptions of what it is and I, I taught a high for actors this spring before it went online <laughs> we continue trying to do that online and uh, it was a very small group, but none of them were interested in the martial arts at
2: all. Mm-hmm.
1: And so I initially did exactly what you describe. I said, oh, yeah, you know, this is the opening of the form, and this is its application. Mm-hmm. Totally not interested, right? Mm-hmm. So I had to rethink it. I had to think, well, this is Taiji for actors. It's not Taiji for MMA. So what exactly do they need? And, and so we really got much, much more into applications for the stage. So we would do the form and we would work on basic principles. How do you stand? What are the basic principles of the movement? And then you know, ask, I would say ask them to walk across the room mm-hmm. or walk across the room and pick up a cup yeah. and use those principles. Uh, Daniel Rose do, does this on a much, much more sophisticated level. I should say, um, he describes a, a whole methodology for training actors and these principles in the book, and I think you you really see it there. You really, you really see application. IG, means something completely different in that context, but incredibly valuable at the same time. So,
0: yeah. So I guess we should ask about, um, so you said that you're working on a book chapter about like learning and teaching about Asia in, in, right. in, in these kind of pandemic times. What, what else is on the agenda? What, what's, has the agenda changed? Has, has it gone on pause or like what, what's happening in the, in the research world for you at the moment? Yeah,
1: well, oddly it's, it's really gone into high gear. I, I have to say that uh, I'm one of those people who have, a, you know, my work has become energized because of the relative isolation. For one thing, I you know, the last several years, I really have become much more of a performance studies person and in, in terms of actually doing performance, doing theater, making theater. Mm-hmm. And so haven't written much about martial arts in the last, um, you know, three, four years, I would say.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And, um, but I was doing a lot of, a lot of theater. So that was all lined up for the summer. I I was going to be in the Shakespeare Festival. I had a project going with at-risk youth and doing theater with them. Mm-hmm. All went down the hole, right? So suddenly I had, I had, you know, 40 hours a week that, and, and at the same time started making these morning videos. And at the same time, I had knee surgery about a year ago, so I've just now been able to actually get back into regular practice and been able to sustain it for a couple of hours a day. So all that came together, and and I realized that only when I'm practicing am I productive as a scholar, as far as martial arts goes. And if practice falls to the wayside, I just don't have a lot of thinking going on about it. So it really reignited a lot. So that said, working. Uh, Daniel and I are working on a book proposal right now about Tai Chi and, and performance, the, oh, specifically actor training, Excellent. you know, that practice, yeah. um, which is an exciting project, and I don't know where it's going to go or if it'll be accepted, but we're, we're kind of looking at that. Um, we're also doing um, a, a conference paper. I'm doing a conference paper as a part of a panel that uh, uh, Doug Farr and um, and Daniel set up Mm -hmm. I'm the late edition, So thank you for that. (laughs) Um, And that's more on just uh, the aesthetics of standing meditation. And I'm kind of looking at Walter Benjamin's, uh, you know, uh, famous uh, quotation about, you know, in his essay about reproduction of art, right? That Looking at this as a as a reproducible art that that we do we do martial arts as reproducible art we just reproduce it in a different way we don't do it through a factory we do it through our bodies so I'm playing with that idea and looking at at how people actually talk about the aesthetics of it in in uh, different contexts and it's really specifically focused on standing meditation so those are those are the main projects that are that are going on this summer I would say. Um, I'm down the line, I really want to do a book on Tai Chi for actors that's much more kind of by the numbers for, you know, maybe teachers who don't necessarily do Tai Chi, but want to bring that into their their classroom.
0: Well, it's great that you've been kind of intellectually as well as physically energized by it. It's it's great to hear like a a kind of a happy, productive story like that. (laughs) (laughs)
1: going you know for getting rid of the, the, the disease uh,
0: yeah. yeah well but i mean i think that that that's that's a that's a high point so i think we should try and end on a high point so i'm going to say um adam thank you so much for um taking the time to talk to me today it's been great all right well i want to before
1: you cut me off yep. thank you thank you and ben and for creating this field of martial arts studies because uh, it's really been a wonderful experience to be able to connect with people around, around these ideas, something we're all excited about, of
2: both as practitioners and as scholars. So much appreciated.
0: You're very welcome. Thank
2: you.